You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Okay, welcome to the Sunset Series in Tribe Tel Aviv and Corey Feldman, our special guest. Um, Corey, if you could just start at the beginning uh, when you first heard the news of what was going on in Israel. Uh, you, you still serve in the reserves of the special forces, which means that you fly back to Israel once a year to serve. And if you could give us kind of a run-up of what happened those first moments, what thoughts went through your head. We know a lot of people are coming back to serve and then how you got to be. And then we'll go into what it was like suiting up and going in and who you went with, in with. Sure. So first of all, thank you for the kind introduction. Um, I'll I'll just note that if folks are able to turn their cameras on, um, I, you know, I'll share whatever I can, but it definitely creates more of a feeling of a community conversation and it will become easier for me to have the, the harder conversations if I'm able to see who I'm speaking with. So no pressure, but if you're able to, it'd be great. Uh, I was staying at my cousin's uh, in between two conferences when I got the news. It was around uh, midnight on the East Coast, and I was getting reports from my friends uh, who were in the military about potential hostages that were taken. Back then, it was, you know, there was rumors of five to 10 hostages. I remember putting it in my group chat, in my army group chat, and people saying, don't spread rumors. We don't have any information yet. It was all just very kind of, you know, we were all seeking information and, and no one really had anything concrete. And obviously, as the day progressed on, I think it was Saturday, um, things got worse and worse. And uh, it became clear that this was an unprecedented uh, event in Israeli history uh, in terms of its magnitude, in terms of its tragedy, and that there would certainly be an IDF response. My brother's wedding was the next weekend, which I knew I needed to be in the States for. So I knew that I wasn't going before then. But I was in contact with my officer and my company commander and was, was kind of letting them know my timelines. I had a, a conference where I was meeting with dozens of investors the next week, which obviously was super challenging to just be present. But there were a number of other Israeli founders there who I kind of found strength in speaking with. So we were all kind of experiencing this thing together from afar, wishing we were there with our people, but but obviously not. And so... I think it was somewhat medicated by knowing that I was going to be going back, you know, in about a week's time. Of course, there was concerns about whether or not the airports would be closed if the northern front opened up. So that was in the back of my mind. But really, I knew that that I wasn't going to miss my brother's wedding. And so that kind of kept me sane uh, in that I knew that I needed to be where I was. So I needed to just try to get through that next week. And it, it was quite surreal going from such an an amazing event celebrating love between two people to flying to Israel for a war that was perpetuated for exactly the opposite reason, right? For, for reasons of hatred and reasons of of um, bias and anti-Semitism. So my, my brother and uh, now sister-in-law chose to be married under the chuppah draped around an Israeli flag. And I took that flag with me and it's in my vest uh, right over my heart. Uh, with me into Gaza, and uh, it's a reminder of what we're what we're fighting for. And I guess what else can I tell you? I, you know, I in the lead up to this, the week before when we were training on base, uh, I was terrified. You know, I've grown up watching movies about the war in Iraq, and you know, in life, especially if you're a Type A person, 
you, you think you can control like a lot of things in your world, whether it's your business, whether it's sales, right? If you do this, then that happens. But there's no inputs that determine whether or not the building that you walk into is booby-trapped and blows up. And there's no input that determines whether the RPG goes into one window versus the other. So it, it all kind of feels very, you feel very powerless in, in the face of these potential threats. And especially after the Shabak spoke to us about the, the tangible threats that we'd be facing, I was left a little bit shaken up. And my officer from my regular service is now an officer in our reserve company. And I think he sensed that. And so he kind of came over to me after and asked me how I was doing. And as someone who's now religious, he, you know, he kind of put it in broader terms and said, God has a plan for us and God loves us. And um, we have no choice, right? Like this is not a war that we asked for. Like the threats are the threats, but we, we just don't have a choice. And I, I think that was somewhat grounding for me. The idea of, of our place in this bigger picture that um, we can't hope to fully understand, but all of us here, I think, believe in, in the state of Israel and its right to exist. And if we believe in that, then we have to be willing to do things in order to advance that. And that's different for everyone. But obviously, in my role as a soldier, that means potentially risking life and limb to ensure Israel's continuity. And, uh, you know, as an individual soldier, you don't have that much of a purview into the bigger picture, but you have to trust that you're there for the right reasons and that the military knows what it's doing. And, you know, so I started putting on tefillin in the morning. I think that has been a good grounding experience. And, and then, you know, our imagination is always worse than, than reality or, or usually worse than reality. And so then actually going into Gaza, like most things in the military, it's really boring until it's not, you know, it's not constant, warfare it's just boring 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 and then you're getting shot at uh so um, so cory you um yeah. stage for us we've i've seen videos of these kind of pre-go-in pep talks gatherings uh did you have one of those could you describe what that was like yeah so the night before at you know around nine o'clock and, and we kind of felt the the change of pace in terms of the briefings in terms of the amount of hours that the officers were missing for, like we kind of had a sense that things were coming to a brink. And our officer told us tomorrow, 10 a.m., we're gonna take your phones, it's happening. And my company commander, who I really love and respect, he was my individual officer before, you know, 10 years ago when I started in the reserves and has since moved up and become the company commander. And he spoke about his experiences at Auschwitz because as a company commander, you do a course that culminates in a visit to Auschwitz and he spoke about how everyone went up and found their family names on the wall at Auschwitz. And for some, there were five names. And for some, there were 15. For him, there were 96 names uh, of, of family members that um, that perished in the Holocaust. And that this is personal and that the actions that were taken are as close as anything has come in our lifetime to the horrors of the Holocaust. And that this is why the Jewish army exists. And, and now it's our turn. And it was just um, emotional, surreal, inspiring. Uh, and, and directly thereafter, his commander, who was a, he's called the Magad, who's the commander of the battalion, gave a, gave a talk outside about the importance of what we're doing and, and our role in the history of the state of Israel. The rabbis blew the shofars, some dance circles broke out. Um, and then we got our bags and there's a little table where they check your name and your ID and your dog tags. Um, and then they put you on the bus and you're 
off off to war basically and this, and this was with the first wave of the invasion yeah it was it was like mid october mm -hmm. and um so you so from what you were saying it seems like you had not experienced live enemy fire before or had you in some of your you know 3 years of serving and then yeah and they I had rockets fired, you know, and I was on the Gaza border in 2012. So I heard rockets flying over me. Some exploded fairly close, 100 meters away. But there's a difference between that and like the house you're in getting RPGs fired at it and within it. And I've had, you know, rocks thrown at me and some cases hit me. But I think, you know, AK-47 bullets flying overhead are a little bit more real. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say I had kind of a a PG version of, of the R-rated movie that is war. Mm -hmm. And um, so you guys go in, what was the feeling amongst you? Can you describe the energy that was hovering around? It, it was conviction. I mean, I was, I, I was, you know, my friends had, had arrived a week before me. And so speaking to some of them, it became clear that things that I was feeling a week later, they had felt a week earlier and kind of worked through. And so, I was just kind of on a, we were having the same thoughts just at different times. Um, but by the time I had arrived and certainly by the time they'd been on base for two or three weeks, there was just this great sense of conviction. Um, you know, my, my, my team is half religious, half not. Um, it's, it's really kind of a cross section of Israeli society, but everyone was confident in the job that needs to be done. The reason that we're here and, there's just there was no wavering. I was just I was strengthened by the conviction of those around me. Mm -hmm. And so could you describe, you know, you said there are moments of boredom and moments of a lot of downtime. Uh, were some of those guard duty? How does that work? You know, not knowing any time who's going to pop out of a tunnel. And then maybe you'll move on to talk about if you had live uh, battle and what that was like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can say this, like we, you know, the first night we, when we went in, it was a, you know, six kilometer march, not terribly far, but I had about 85 pounds or 30 kilos and it took a while, it's, you know, over eight hours. And so you stop and you start and you never know when you're going to get back up again. So do you kneel down or do you sit down because if you're sitting, it's much more comfortable. It's kind of this weird, like, uh, back and forth. And, you know, I remember we crossed into Gaza uh, and that was kind of the first surreal moment and began to kind of weave our way towards where we'd ultimately end up. And it felt a little bit like the, the movie Clockwork Orange, if you've ever seen it about the Vietnam War, you're, you're, it was a, a, a thin crescent moon so that there was not a ton of light, but there was this like orange on the horizon. And as we were weaving back and forth across these sand dunes in this kibbutz, we were like walking towards it. And so it kind of grew on the horizon and then the explosions get louder. And, you know, you can see the explosions at a certain point you know, going off in the background or it's the foreground. And it's like you're marching towards this kind of Dante's Inferno. And, you know, then at a certain point, there's a there's a intelligence that there's three terrorists in the field. So you're cleared for fire in both directions. And now you're like, you're in it. You're like, I'm in Gaza. It's it's dark. I can't see anything, and there's potentially three terrorists in this field. Like, shit. I think that was my first thought. <laughs> like, you're human, right? Like, it's it's normal. You're like, this is this is kind of crazy, 
Um, and, and, you know, we weaved our way through a field. We took some fire in that field, couldn't identify the location of it, um, which again is, is scary, right? Like you can only see the first row of, of fruits or whatever it is. And there's infinite rows of fruits. And so there's infinite possibilities for a place that a person could be. And then finally, we we ran at the city itself, which was kind of our, our mission was to take over a certain house in uh, Beit Hanun, which was our area of operations. And I think on the map, it looked manageable and small, like I'd be able to see from one side to the other. And then as we we left this field and kind of ran towards our initial uh, points, there's just this vast, mostly destroyed, granted cities, you know, sprawled out before you with infinite locations that snipers could be hiding in. And again, you're just kind of intimidated by the vast nature of, uh, of war. And, you know, we took some small arms fire, but we ultimately got ourselves into the house that we were meant to be in. And you basically operationalize it. So you turn one of the rooms into a sleeping room. You ensure that you have a room facing in each direction that becomes kind of the guarding room where you put up sheets and blankets to make sure that no light comes in so that it's not visible at night to, to the enemy. And there's ways of obscuring the views in the windows so that, you know, people can't see you. And, you know, you just basically turned it into a, a forward operating base. And from there, you know, go off on various missions, uh, kind of, I, I struggle sometimes with the English words because I, I know how to say the I've never been in the army in English, so I'm, I'm I apologize for the lapses. I'm trying to translate some of the the terminology in my own head, but in essence, it's like uh, well, tell us in Hebrew. That's the the uh bite, like a like to conquer a house, but like in essence, to take a position. Take a position, yeah, yeah. So you you know, but but it's temporary, right? It's like okay, this is a house that might be of interest to us. From a strategic perspective, so we're going to go and sweep this house, um, or we, there's a tunnel that we want to blow up, and so we're going to take a position in this house and cover the guys who are working to pump the explosives into this tunnel. Um, you know, that that's kind of an example of some of the missions that we might go on. But um, your unit was how many guys? So my unit, uh, my 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 team is is around twenty guys. Um, my company is five teams of the same size. Um, all of us were in Orev Givati in our um, Sadir, and now it's called Palnata Negev. Um, there's three companies that make up the dude. So uh, Orev, Palsar, and uh, Palkhan. So one that specializes in uh, missiles, one that specializes in counter-terror, one that specializes in explosives. Um, and so we make up together, you know, the 300 or, or soldiers or so kind of the, the company, let's say. And I just want to, people weren't with us six months ago, this is special forces. So these guys have been uh, through trainings that are pushed them to the limits of human capabilities um, in terms of the rigor of it, the mental rigor of it. They've all been vetted psychologically uh, out of thousands of applicants. Uh, it's whittled down to how many? 300 finalists, I think, what was it? 3,000 down to 300. And then not everyone makes it through training. Can you repeat? Can you remind us of that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's different special forces, and the numbers look different for each one. I, th I think you're referring to Duvdevan, which which is certainly a, a lower percentage. But within Givati, uh, within every infantry brigade, um, 
there's a tryout for the special unit within the brigade. And so I never did that tryout because I was in Duke Devon when they were doing it. But in essence, it, it, it gets rid of the people that don't want to be there. And then, as you pointed out, during the course of training, you do these incredibly difficult things that you don't think you're capable of, that um, it turns out you are capable of. And you do it together, and it creates incredibly strong bonds um, within folks on the team. And it creates a sense of confidence that you're capable of doing things that you thought you weren't. And are there things that came out in teamwork uh, in battle now that you know might have been there a little bit, but wow, this really, I see now. I guess I was just impressed, impressed with, with my friend, friends and my team, just seeing the way they operated under high pressure situations and uh, under fire and whether it's um, the application of tourniquets or just um, their willingness to, to fire back um, under, under these crazy conditions. I just, I felt proud and I felt um, like the training worked. And because you, the, your special forces, Givati, are you guys sent on harder missions than your typical uh, infantry? Yeah, I mean we're we're the tip of the sword, right? So we're we are the first. We were among, if not the first, um, reservists in Gaza. Um, if if I'm wrong, it's by a day. And uh, you know, my friends in the SEALs and Duvdevan, like. It's, it's a different kind of special forces. Like when you're in the SEALs, you're going in with a mission and there's someone that you're going to take out and they don't know it's coming, but you do. And the difference with infantry is that you, it's it's command and control. We go in with the tanks, we go in with the D9s, the D9s will will scout for um, mitans, for like IEDs, um, and the tanks will scout for people and buildings and we'll cover the- D9s are the bulldozers or the yeah. scraper. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we work in tandem with this with this heavy machinery. We cover the tanks because their visibility is somewhat limited. Um, but they have a, a heavy machine gun mounted on them in addition to the turret. So, you know, we work together. But at the end of the day, because we've set up a forward operating base in the house, within a couple of days, the terrorists know where our house is. So, it, you know, different from your Navy SEALs, your Sariad Matkal, like they come in and they go, and if they've done their job well, they're undetected. We are an obvious presence in the battlefield, and so we're a target. Um, and so, like, you know, you know, it, it comes with its own challenges, right? Like, you you don't always get to take the fight to the enemy. Sometimes they take it to you. And, and I think that is definitely what distinguishes infantry from some of the specialized units. But within the infantry, we are the tip of the spear. Uh, we go first, and we are sometimes given more more challenging missions. And the nineteen year old guys. So you're are you integrated with them, or your whole division is Miluim? Thank God, I'm not integrated with them. Um, I I think we, as reservists, we definitely have a much greater sense of of what we're fighting for and what we want to come home to than the average nineteen or twenty year old who thinks war is glorious and. Um, you know, wants to get some. And and that's definitely not the way we view the world. We want to do our job here, but we all want to come home. And so we are um, grateful to be among other people who have that same feeling and who take a beat before taking action and work slowly and methodically um, because we, we know the stakes. And um, were some of your comrades wounded or are there any losses in your battalion? 
Yeah, thank thankfully, um, no one has been killed yet, um, and hopefully will, will not be. We have taken some um, significant, we've had some significant injuries, I'll say. So the whole battalion, you have not had losses yet? Uh, in the uh, yeah, so the the uh, a soldier was killed in the Palkhan, which is part of our you know, three hundred person company, or three hundred person dude within my company, which is the you know the hundred soldiers and the five teams that I spoke about. Fortunately, no one has been killed. You're welcome. And um, have you had? Uh, do you feel the energy of the enemy, or it's just kind of like it's flying? Have you? had to actually confront on closer quarters. Um, the enemy is, is there... a ghost. I have not seen a single human in Gaza other than an IDF soldier. I've been shot at, but they, they're they like rats. They pop up from the ground. Most of the small arms fire is sporadic. Um, I, I don't think they, they're they looking at us. The RPGs is, is more personal because they have to have a view in order to shoot it. Um, in the interactions that we've been in that involve those... Um, I don't think any of us actually saw the person we were firing at. The unmanned drone picked up in some cases that our small arms fire was able to take out some of them, and the unmanned drone also can fire its own um, missiles, which it apparently did. But again, at my level, I'm not privy to the videos of the aftermath, so it's all kind of hearsay. But um, it, it's actually been remarkable how there's been no interaction, right? Like what we train for in urban warfare is like opening rooms, clearing rooms, expecting to find someone in the corner and there's just nothing and no one. Um, they they fight uh, from a place of strength, which basically means if they can be as hidden as possible and uh, as unexposed as possible, uh, that, that's what they try to do. And so do you cycle cycle through? How does it work? You're off for a few days. Um, are are there other uh, reservists who've come from Chutzla arts like you? Um, are you? Do you have a set time that you are expected to, a minimum time you are expected to be here? Because we know, you know, the above ground incursion is moving along at a good pace, but no one knows how long the below ground will take and how many people will need, be needed for that. So how's that going to impact you? Yeah, we actually have a, uh, um, a, a bet on what date will be released. Um, it ranges from mid-December to March. Um, so there's no, um, there, there's no set time. Um, there, this is unprecedented. So there's no, in the Yom Kippur War, I think reservists were in for six months. So there, there's, there's no telling how long it might take. Uh, Typically, we're out for 10 days. We're in Gaza for 10 days and out for 24 hours. Every couple cycles, I think they want to send us home, um, like people to be able to go home to their families. So um, I think that will be happening soon. But um, yeah, it's typically 10 days in, one day out. And are you now at the base? Uh, no, I'm actually in Tel Aviv for my one day out and I'm heading back tomorrow. Okay. The timing worked out well. Thank yeah. you. Can um, I ask a quick question? Sure. Uh, it's okay? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Corey, thank you. Um, I, I was just wondering, when you say the place in Gaza is like a ghost town, what a, like what's your situation on the ground, what you're seeing about all the Palestinian civilians, the, the ones that were, uh, sorry to make it about us, but that we're all hearing about and seeing all the the 
either killed Palestinian innocent civilians and this. And do you or do you see any people there, like just regular people, not terrorists, not shooting at you? No, no bodies, no people, no faces, nothing, no sign of life, literally nothing. Um, I, I'm operating in an area called Beit Hanun. You know, others are in other places. Um, but for me, I've seen absolutely nothing. No, no one that I'm with has seen anyone. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Sure. So you, by the time you got there, the civilians had all been cleared out? Yeah, I mean, I think they got the message when things started blowing up. I mean, most, if not, you know, the vast majority of houses have a good degree of damage from the Air Force. So, you know, they were told many times to evacuate. And I think the Air Force's actions made it clear that the IDF was serious about that and people got out of there. Okay. Right. Um, so you mentioned before about putting on tefillin and about, uh, you know, that you're a commander talking to you about uh, there's a larger plan and the Almighty is behind us. Have you seen, there is, there are, you know, I know that, Hundreds of thousands of pairs of tzitzit have been sent to the front. Uh, do you see a kind of shakeup in people's religiosity? Um, can you speak to that a little bit and what, how that manifests itself? Yeah, I think we're studying for the potential test. Um, but, you know, <laughs> there's a there's a famous proverb that there's no atheists in, uh, in foxholes. And uh, I think it definitely rings true, right? You're, you live your life, and for the most part, at our age, the prospect of, of death is, is far off. But in a situation like war, your prospect of death definitely goes up, and you're like, oh, well, maybe there is a God, and if there is, might be good to be on good terms. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've definitely seen people that uh, are not religious join in on Friday night prayers and putting in tefillin. My officer, who's like the least religious person ever, I uh, missed a call from him earlier, and told him he was he told me he was in shul which is like the last place i would put him so i i definitely see kind of an uptick in religiosity uh, i think it is helpful to believe in something greater and a reason for the seeming chaos and uh, uncertainty around us yeah i mean i would say the word religious can mean different things i think you're using the sense of observant people are observant but usually people who are mining that inside them there is a uh you know, as we call a pintaliid, there is a, a little flame in there that now has kind of ignited more. Um, and one of my teachers once said, you know, there are atheists in the foxhole sometimes, some still don't, but uh, there's no person who has some belief that doesn't in the foxhole kind of like want to <laughs> connect. Yeah, yeah. Did you see any people who are just like, this is not for me, you know, it's very nice that you're, you know, yeah. some people finding strength in this, but uh, Definitely, you, two of the two of the guys that I was, you know, most taken by in terms of their bravery and their conviction in in you know in a hot moment. I've never seen perform any sort of religious act ever. Um, so you know that the things are not necessarily correlated, but I would I would just say on the average, it has definitely if you know if forty percent were doing any sort of religious things, it's probably over fifty now. Okay. And th those 10 days when you're in, so did you spend 10 days in one of those houses, bunked out? How do you sleep? Uh, I imagine some people have all night guard duty. Uh, is it just 10 days of grueling through it, which you were trained for in those grueling uh, training uh, 
marches all night and for whatever, however many days of non-sleep? Is that kind of what's going on? Uh actually sleep a lot um the first day was was the longest i mean that we were probably awake for 36 or 40 hours um and then we we're in this house that's blistering hot um told to sleep with our vests on which is another 30 pounds so that was it the first couple of days were very uncomfortable i was like sweating out two liters of water a night uh the, the guard duty is is limited because you need to be focused because you're in gaza so it's it's I won't give a number amount, but it's definitely short. It's, it's short enough that you can be focused for that period. We thankfully have enough soldiers that it's not crazy. You know, you're getting sleep if you can sleep. It depends on the house that you're in, right? In, so, in some houses, we're all curled up on the ground, on you know, on the ground. You know, we're lucky to find a pillow. In some houses, we find mattresses, and then all of a sudden, it, it becomes a little bit more comfortable. The latest has been, okay, now it's like kind of cold, so how many blankets do we have? And I got a bunch of donations for sleeping bags that um, I brought in last time we were in. So things have gotten a little bit better on that front. But um, yeah, for the most part, you have a home base and you switch it whenever the Magad tells you that you're moving. There's no rhyme or reason to it. You never know when it's going to happen. Uh, I do like our new accommodation, we'll say. Uh, it's it's a nice house as far as they go. And yeah, that that's that's kind of it. There's no There's no normal, I would say. And it must be strange to be sleeping in the houses of the population where your enemy is coming from. Um, what is the attitude towards the houses, the property? Um, is that a weird relationship? Different guys have a different attitude towards it. I don't, I don't know that others think about it as much. I think maybe as an American, I, I definitely think about it. Like I found the press pass for one of the guys in the first house and was like, wow, I could like look this guy up on Google like living in his house. It's kind of a surreal thought. Um, I don't know that, I mean, it certainly influences us, you know, like we're in a child's bedroom and taking a 10 pound hammer to the bed because we need to put the floorboards up on the window to prevent the enemy from, from seeing us and firing at us. When I did it, I wasn't happy about dismantling the room of a child, but I didn't feel any sort of guilt. Like I, I don't feel... I feel that the reason that we're in the situation is Hamas. Hamas has put us in the situation. We passed a, a kindergarten that was intact. It was a ground floor kindergarten. The toys were scattered. One of the toys was a four foot plastic Kazam rocket, um, like the ones that are used to, to fire indiscriminately at Israeli civilians. So either the people of Gaza are violent people and we found rockets under children's beds in addition to the plastic ones, or they're peaceful people and their will and the will of Hamas is being enforced upon them. If they're violent people, then I don't feel bad. And if they're peaceful people and what we're doing is meant to free them from the rule of Hamas, then in some cases, the ends must justify the means because how else can we free the Gaza Strip from Hamas but by going to war? And war is an ugly thing and it's terrible and there's no winners. But at the end of the day, if we're able to remove the threat of Hamas from Gaza and hopefully something worse does not replace it, then then we'll have done some good in the world. Uh, and hopefully future generations of Palestinian children won't be brought up playing with plastic Kazam rockets and being taught that the greatest uh, achievement in life is to, is to kill Israeli civilians, which is how things work today in Gaza. Yeah. So it's uh, it, thank you for sharing your thought process and uh, 
it uh, it must be hard, but it make it makes sense too when you speak about it in that perspective. Yeah. Uh, and the sense of purpose he talked about before of the soldiers, you know, was putting in a larger context of why you're there and what you're meant to accomplish. So um, let's open it up. Uh, thank you, Corey. And uh, um, thank you for your service, first of all. I mean, uh, you're there protecting all of us and, uh, and fighting for the Jewish people. I mean, we know the larger picture you talked about Auschwitz, you know, they said this was another pogrom a terrible history of Jewish pogroms, but now we have an army to defend ourselves and fight back. And that is unprecedented in Jewish history. And uh, and for you to be on the front lines, uh, we we thank you with all our heart. And um, uh, so let's open it up. Oh, there's Shanna. Hi, Shanna. Hi, I'm on the you call. Wanna, um, you want to, uh, we just yeah. had give us a great... Um, running dialogue. So you want to take over? We're going to do questions now. If people would like to yes. put questions. Yes, I was listening. I was listening people, with my camera off. If people would like to put questions on the message board, you're welcome to do that or to log on and, yes. uh, and ask. So everyone who has a question, put it in the chat and we'll get through all of them. We have time for questions. I was listening. Thank you, Corey, for giving us the most important in-depth look into what is happening in Gaza. I think so many people have questions and you really brought everyone's uh, mind into the film of what's happening for you on a day-to-day, -day, so thank you. And I'm sure that a lot of people have questions, so put your questions in the chat and we'll, we'll get through all of them. I just landed in uh, Buffalo where I'm going to be giving a talk to the to, two talks to students and faculty about anti-Semitism on campus. Um, oh, so we have a question from Jordan. It says, thank you, Corey. What do you do to pass the time besides sleeping? Are you getting enough to eat? Uh, yeah, I, I read um, like 600 pages of George Orwell and like the, in the first week there wasn't much we were doing besides like just adjusting to the craziness of it all. And by the second week we're like, okay, like, we understand how this all works. So yeah, I've, I've read like four or five books. Um, that's kind of what I do. We talk, we argue with each other because that's what Israelis do. Uh, and we eat too much, I would argue. I actually have started intermittent fasting because I'm disgusted by the amount of junk food that manages to make it in. And I'm trying to exert some measure of control over my actions and eating. But um, yeah, we, we are able to get food. They take Hummers in to get us food. Uh, and ammunition on an almost nightly basis. So we are eating enough. Uh, Can you speak to, uh, the, you know, the, there's lots of, my wife was at Aroma today making sandwiches, which were sent down. You know, there's so much talk of all the things being sent in, cards, food. Uh, does Is that trickled down? How do the soldiers feel about that? Does it make an impact? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I go to Aroma and like it's, you know, free, free for soldiers. And it, it, yeah, and like the, some of that stuff makes it in sometimes where like I had Mexicani one night in Gaza, which is like a super weird um, situation. So, yeah, the, the donations definitely make it. I can get you guys a link. A, a good friend of mine who was a lone soldier with me has partnered with a bunch of nonprofits um, and can actually get a hold of military grade equipment and get it to the front lines. Uh, they're getting us helmets. So 
They've raised a quarter million dollars so far. Uh, I know him personally, so I can I can pass that on to Jonathan um, for folks who are asking what the best way to donate is. Um, I, I think uh, he's he comes to mind right now as kind of the, the place where I'm funneling all my resources. Um, well, you speak to that. I mean, you know, people, I think people, I'm very confused. Uh, I heard that no one's not going in with full equipment. Um, I understand there might be like, vital equipment like the right helmet and the right uh jacket and then there might be add-ons like goggles knee pads tactical gloves uh can you talk to that a little bit yeah no 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 the army's not sending anyone into gaza without a bulletproof vest right like that that's the starting point uh or without a helmet the question is is that a helmet from 2001 uh what is the ballistic specifications of it is it comfortable because you wear the helmets kind of all the time and so it's good to have a helmet that actually is comfortable since you're literally living in it. So the question of the quality of the gear, right? Like, do they have enough scopes for the M16s or are they giving you an M16 with metal sights? Uh, everyone has, in theory, everything that they're supposed to have, but not as good a version of it as they could have or would have under normal circumstances. And so that's where the donations come in a little bit. And um, yeah, I, I, I think hopefully that clarifies a little bit. Okay, great. So we're going to move into a next question that we have from Robbie Landau. How does it work when your unit has to coordinate with the Air Force and the Navy at the same time? So maybe just speak to us a bit about your unit's coordination with other sectors of the Army. Um, I'm going to pass on that one because I'm like the like my day job. I guess I, I have like some decision making responsibilities as a CEO. As a soldier, I have zero connection to any coordination with anyone um, beyond my immediate team. But um, I, I do imagine that the company at, at the, it's really not even my company commander's level. He has connection to the battalion and at the battalion level, there's there's communication with the Air Force uh, and artillery and tanks. So um, we do work in tandem with them, but I'm not privy to exactly how that communication happens. And hopefully you guys can find an officer that can give you better answers mm -hmm. than I can. But is, That's a great answer. Aren't they talking about the integrated uh, systems that, you know, do you like have a laser that tags a house that will then be sent to the Air Force and in three minutes they're coming in and bombing that house? Does your unit? Yeah, that, that's that, that unit's called, well, two units that I'm aware of do that, Shaldag and Maglan, where they paint the target for the Air Force behind enemy lines. But it's a specific unit and a specific technology. So it's not everyone that does that, but but that does exist. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from A.J. Harris. There's a lot of destruction in Gaza and a problem with the water sewage. Do you think the Palestinians will be able to return to Gaza to live, or at least in the parts that you've described to us that are desolate? It really depends on, on what happens with Hamas. You know, Beit Hanun is a complete wasteland. You know, I was joking with someone that whenever anything happens in a refugee camp in the West Bank, the New York Times will put up a picture that displays the entire refugee camp is destroyed. And typically it's like, you know, a 300 square foot, you know, area that's been destroyed and they've taken the photo in such an angle that it makes it look like the entire camp is destroyed. In this case, the actual city has been destroyed. Like objectively speaking, I look out the window and I see a post-apocalyptic scene of utter destruction. That said, if the people of Gaza were to rid themselves of, of, of Hamas and to, to say with a clear heart under clear leadership, we want this to work and we want something peaceful, Israel would turn Gaza into uh, a Garden of Eden. Israel would commit the resources required to clean up 
Beit Hanun and other cities and to rebuild the water plants and the sewage plants. It's, it's only a question of the desire of the people within Gaza to live in some measure of peace with Israel that determines um, how they will live after this war is over. Um, because Israel and the international community have the resources to make Gaza what it needs to be. Think about building projects that go up in your neighborhoods and how quickly they go when there's a lot of money behind them, right? The people of Gaza, I believe, are like the second highest recipients of international aid on a per capita basis in the world. And they see none of that money because it goes towards building terror tunnels under hospitals, among other places. So it's really a question of, of where Gazans see their own future. If, if they come uh, to Israel with open arms, which candidly and cynically, I, I don't really see happening, um, in the desire for peace and for something better, Gaza could be what it once was, which was a beautiful place where Arabs and Israelis live together in some measure of peace. Uh, and, and it could be a, a beach town that people go to visit on weekends, but we're, we're a long way from that. Okay, thank you for taking that. And we have an interesting question from Anna Kay. She says, thanks for sharing. How do you cope with the rest of the world and how they look at this war? It must be so hard and frustrating to be fighting for you and your friends' lives in Gaza, and at the same time, having fake news question all the truth of what's going on. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, for for me, it's actually quite easy because we don't have our phones in Gaza, so I have absolutely no access to the news. Uh, they don't let us have radios because they don't want us to be disheartened by whatever news is coming through. I mean, it was, they don't let us, it's kind of a discussion at the reservist level, right? Our officer, and we talked about it and we all kind of agreed. Yeah, I, th I think it would be better to be without, and you know, there's one radio in the house and there's, you know, an hour every day where the people who want can listen to the news. But for the most part, we try not to zoom out too much beyond our in initial area of focus. And so my interactions on the international news is limited to kind of one day every 10 days. And that's also the day when I'm dealing with 200 text messages and my family's interaction. So I'm, I'm not diving too deeply into it. I'm sure afterwards I'll be caught up on all that's happening and transpired. It doesn't look extremely promising, but uh, at the moment I'm a little bit in, um, in limbo and not really in the loop. I think that that's probably for the best so that you can stay focused on what you need to do. We have a question from Jordan. He wants to know if you understand any Arabic or if there's anyone that you're working with that understands Arabic. I speak very little Arabic. Um, I do have a friend on my team, our sergeant, who does speak uh, who does speak Arabic. Okay, great. Go ahead. I said, Anabarif Arabic Shwaye. Okay, I, I didn't catch that. And there's a reason. Um, okay, so thank you so much. Does anybody else have any other questions? Corey, can you post well, that a... donate that uh, you'd mentioned the guys you know who are collecting, uh, getting a Yeah, let me see if I can get that for you. See if you can find that link. We had a number of questions from people who want to know how they can donate and support. And um, I have a question, which is, how are you able to manage taking this time off from your work while you are in the reserves? And what are your friends that had to, that are in the reserves had to do in order to be able to get the time to be able to uh, join in Miluim? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the, me and the other guy that I am closest with, Noy Lab, um, both have our own companies. And so it's kind of our choice. It's been... Um, 
really difficult, candidly, right? I mean, it's we're a really young company. It's me and my co-founder. Um, and so it's been hard to, it's been hard. Um, one second, I am. Um, Need concentration, no problem. Clinicians. The wiring ammo. Um, okay. This uh, I'm obviously putting my own unit information in here, but um, you know it sh it shouldn't just be for. I I actually think I have most of what I need, and I want to be cognizant that there are units that don't. And so for those that are looking to make a donation, I can also put in an email address here of um, Sam. And so if you're saying, hey, I don't know of any specific unit that's in need, but I want to help um, and I want to donate. You know, Sam can be your point of contact. So I put in the uh, organization. I put in Sam's email address, um, and I'm about to put in the uh, wiring information as well into the group chat. Um, so then folks will have it, and then I'll be able to concentrate on your question, which I have already forgotten. Hold on one second. All right, cool. Sorry, I'm back. Okay, great. Thanks for finding that information for us. So. Um... Do you want to say any share anything else about so you as a CEO taking this time off? At least you have a co-founder that you can uh, rely on, but I'm sure that it affects your bottom line and your growth. And what about your colleagues uh, that are doing the same thing, but they actually have bosses that they needed to ask permission from? Yeah, I mean, I, I surely would have been if I was still working for my last company. Like they, I probably would have been on unpaid leave at this point. I mean, you know, if you're Amer if you're an Israeli it's expected that you do this and it's kind of the way it works in Israel, but obviously American firms don't work the same way. So to be able to do this, you need to basically be able to quit your job if you're not working for yourself. Um, but again, I mean, the, the outpouring of support from abroad and the people coming back, I mean, the reservist uh, percentage of folks who accepted their, like Tzav Shmona was like over a hundred percent, meaning not only did everyone who was ordered come, but people who were not ordered also came our company was supposed to be four teams and it's five teams because the team that was supposed to have graduated was like, nah, we didn't graduate. We're coming. Um, so it, it's really been remarkable to see how widely supported uh, Israel's efforts have been. That's so great to hear. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. I think we all really appreciate it that you coming in from the United States to do reserve duty, taking this time out of your life, and taking your one day off out of 10 to share your experiences and reflect with us. I hope that it was somewhat reflective for you as well, because I'm sure that you're running, 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 and you don't stop a lot to, uh, to think or review. So thank you for doing that with us at Tribe Tel Aviv for the Sunset Series. Corey, the link did not come through on the message chat. I don't it's see not it. a link. It's um, unfortunately, like all things in Israel, it's not as easy as it should be, but there's two documents. One is the explanation for the uh, Central Fund of Israel. The second is the wiring instructions. I don't um, see it. Does anyone see it on the message? Or, I don't uh, see it. Perhaps. I sent Maybe it to you put it in. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. The direct I message, message to someone. Me I, I, I said, yeah. Um, so let's see. I'm just going to pull these docs and put them back in the group chat. Sorry. I have um, some uh, grassroots guys who are collecting similar. I just posted that. Um, the first one that I posted, and then you're you have here. So yeah, I just posted um, the two documents that I referenced and the information about 
uh, credit card donations having a max of 1K and wire transfers being preferred. Um, and you can put, um, you know, whatever designation you want. I obviously put my own unit because why not? But again, if you have a specific unit that you're raising for, you can find out their um, unit and battalion number. Any closing words of pe people on the home front? Uh... Yeah, I, I would just, um, I, I'm sure it is actually harder to not be able to be a soldier and directly contribute to the fight. I mean, especially if folks, you know, as you noted, kind of moved here late in life and kind of missed that chapter where they're able to enlist. But I, I want to assure you that what you're doing is no less important and it's felt tremendously by the soldiers, the love, the support, the food, the donations, like we see it, we feel it. And it makes an incredible difference to know how strongly uh, we are supported throughout the country and that the nation of Israel is behind us. And so I would just say that if you feel like what you're doing doesn't matter or is not significant, I would really challenge that and let you know that we feel it deeply and are deeply, deeply appreciative and, and grateful. Okay. Thank so you. nice. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Corey. That was so nice. And I, I think everyone really appreciates that. And we, again, appreciate your time, big time. So for everyone who wanted that information, Corey put two documents, PDFs into the chat, and there's a link from Rabbi Feldman as well. So take a moment to download that or copy that message or copy that website. And uh, we'll also have that accessible for you all in our future emails if you should need. And I just want to say thank you again. This was really informative and uh, impactful. Thank you, guys. Take care. And uh, tune Take in care. next week, folks. Uh, we'll be sending out an email with our next week's uh, Sunset next series. Week. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome, all. Bye bye. Yeah. Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you. Thank you. Very much.